0: The United States ranks number one in healthcare spending, reaching nearly 18% of our GDP, or approximately $3.8 trillion. There are a number of reasons for this huge spending, and we hope to explore this further in our episodes on the business of healthcare. Today, we're talking about waste and healthcare delivery. It is estimated that 25% of all healthcare spending can be attributed to one form of waste or another. Today, we'll talk about what medical waste looks like, what others have suggested as solutions, and why it's important as medical trainees to be on the lookout for areas of waste or inefficiency. Welcome to Leading the Rounds.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. Hey Peter, how you doing today?
0: I'm doing really good, Caleb, how about yourself?
1: Hanging in there, it's exam week, so it's a busy one. Oh
0: yeah.
1: In between studying and just getting the recording done.
0: But we're still here to give quality content. (laughs)
1: That's what we hope. (laughs) Today we're going to talk about medical waste. And this episode is centered around a JAMA article that Peter and I enjoyed reading called Eliminating Waste in Healthcare by Berwick and Hackbarth. Peter and I thought this was a very important topic to discuss because it's extremely prevalent in the U.S., as the U.S. has a high medical spending, and a lot of it is due to waste. So we're going to break down in this episode six different types of waste seen in the healthcare industry, and then also what we as medical trainees and future leaders can do to prevent medical waste. So Peter's going to start us out with the first type of medical waste.
0: So the first type of medical waste set out by uh, Berwick and Hackbarth in their 2012 article was failures of care delivery. As medical students, we learn a lot about the way we go about a, like a like a PE workup or, you know, a, a, someone who comes in with chest pain. What's the workup we do? What is the what are the clinical pathways that we, we think about? So failures in care delivery are failures to adopt or or their poor execution of the evidence based practices that we learn. So this is like uh, people who take shortcuts trying to like just, you know, quickly skip over the diagnosis or they think they know what the diagnosis is and they, they just they, they go to the presumptive treatment.
1: Yeah. So one example I can think of right off the bat for a uh, delivery protocol and something that we just recently used is the heart score for acute coronary syndrome, the different scores and protocols used to diagnose things. So for example, if a patient came in and they were, had chest pain and you were looking at, you know, their EKG, their cardiac bioenzymes, things like that. Um, it would be easy to overtreat and maybe go for Uh, stent placement or something like that in a patient who had a low heart score, you know, if you weren't paying attention to the guidelines and if you weren't giving the best care delivery that you could give.
0: Definitely and and one thing I think that's underappreciated as medical students is that there's a lot of different quality improvement initiatives that are undertaken to develop things like the heart score like we just kind of think oh it's a calculator that we plug in some symptoms to get a number but there's a, there was a good bit of research and a good bit of clinical trials that went into developing something like the heart score um so you know conducting qi initiatives and improving the way that we deliver care is one way that we can start to combat failures with care delivery uh, even taking um patient safety initiatives into consideration too and by that i mean you know say like you mentioned stent placements so you know that's a in and of itself, is a risky procedure. So, if you skip the heart score and you go to uh, straight to a stent placement, that that itself could be a form of of putting the patient in an unsafe environment. And the other thing that we sometimes uh, that was grouped into this by uh, Shrank, Rogstad, and Parekh in the twenty nineteen Jam article was prevention initiatives. I think I think prevention in general could reduce the the cost of healthcare spending. And maybe it's a different episode. One thing I struggle with starting out in medicine
1: is figuring out like where the different protocols are and things like that. And something that's really helped me is downloading some of the apps that are used for whether it's scores or preventions. And so a few of those that I really love is like up to date app and uh, MD Calc is a great one as well, or the prevention task force, which kind of hit a few of the things that you mentioned there that can help standardize care in an easy, efficient way, just by pulling out your cell phone and using the app to, track what you're doing or to check a different protocol for treating a disease.
0: And actually this, this brought to mind, um, something that one of our course directors had said that all these apps are tools that we get to use in the clinic. So I think something else that, that, uh, Shrank, Rog said, and Perek actually missed that might fit into ways that we could combat failures of care delivery is developing better tools. Finding, finding needs and ways that we can deliver this information, these clinical pathways to physicians at the front lines. So Caleb, why don't you talk about the second form of waste?
1: So the second form of waste that was discussed in this JAMA article is failures of care coordination. So this is when patients fall through the cracks of our healthcare system. And this is something that we talked about a little bit in our interview with Paul Thomas and it matches up with his his analogy of sand falling through your hands. Because the healthcare system is so full of what we call silos or different areas of care that aren't integrated, it can be easy for patients to simply slip through the cracks, and whether it's not following up with their primary care physician or uh, being transferred somewhere else and then missing an appointment, it can be easy for patients to not receive follow-up and not receive the proper care that they need for their condition and what this can do is it leads to readmissions and I worked on a project earlier this year that was about readmissions and heart failure and this is one of the things we looked at is a lot of times patients get discharged and told to follow up with their primary care doc to adjust medications and to see how they're doing after they've been admitted to the hospital for heart failure and sometimes this just doesn't happen. Whether the patient doesn't have a primary care doc, they miss the appointment, they don't have transportation to the appointment. But all of these different things would fall under fa- failures of care coordination, leading to medical waste, readmissions, and things like that.
0: I know one thing that we've uh, we've talked extensively about off offline is um, checklists, especially in our work with the IHI. Um, you know, I think having a checklist and, and specific things that communicate to providers collaborating on even uncomplicated and non-complicated patients can definitely help with mitigating failures of care coordination.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that and it doesn't really fit with failures of care coordination but you mentioned checklists there and it's just a, another thing that's I think is super important for quality improvement for um, eliminating Waste is having checklists for procedures and it's, uh, it reminds me of, you know, the, the World Health Organization's surgery checklist and the different initiatives that the IHI has put out. We even do timeouts for our anatomy labs to start practicing that. And so doing that early in training, making sure you're following protocols are all great things to help prevent waste and to help improve quality care for patients.
0: I think those checklists that you are bringing up actually fit more under mitigating failures of care delivery.
1: Yeah, I I definitely agree.
0: Cause imagine how much money it costs to take a a gauze out of a patient that you left in. Right?
1: Right. Right. Exactly.
0: One gauze could probably cost you like (laughs) $10,000. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A lot of money for repeat surgery.
0: Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think checklists just keep everybody accountable and that's, that's important too is, you know, we're all busy people. So how do we how do we build in these structures to to keep us on track and to help help us keep from like having the sand through through our fingers as Paul Thomas would say. So Peter, do you want to bring up the third
1: method of waste?
0: Yeah, and sure. So we've been getting kind of at this, but over treatment and low value care is another form of waste. So we mentioned the gauze stuck in the patient that could be considered low value care over treatment would be like a patient who comes in for, you know, heart failure and they get put on a number of medication, like four or five medications, but they actually don't need four or five of them. They may maybe only need like an ACE inhibitor and then maybe a diuretic. And that could fall onto like the physician just kind of clumping all heart failure together and saying, okay, this is just what, and having a poor understanding of like what, what it is we should be prescribing for which conditions. And also using, you know, like antiquated or unproven methodologies, which I th- so I think some, sometimes it's hard to change the way you have been doing things. But I think being open minded and responsive to the research that's being done and staying up to date is quite important.
1: Yeah, I've kind of a funny example of this and it wasn't actually with a human patient in a hospital. It was actually <laughs> with my dog. So <laughs> recently. My dog had a benign fibrous histiocytoma on his foot and I had talked to my aunt who's a veterinarian in a different state and she told me that's what she thought it was and she said that it would probably grow really big and then it would probably get very necrotic and the tumor would fall off but you would be left with a wound and then you'd have to wound care for a few weeks until it got better so my that's what my me and my girlfriend did we worked on you know treating it as it continued to grow grow. and then once it grew to its maximal size it started to get really nasty and our dog started to have some other symptoms so we ended up taking him to a vet closer to us to see what they would say about the tumor what they told us was that they weren't sure what it was They didn't do a biopsy but they thought it should be surgically removed and it was going to cost us 700 to 900 dollars to take it off surgically and so we were left with the decision do we continue to wait it out do we continue to see what happens maybe it'll fall off maybe it'll heal or do we pay for the surgery that we know can get rid of it and we decided to wait wait it out and see what happened And it did do the same thing that my aunt had told me. It did fall off. It did ulcerate. And now it's completely healing over. So we didn't have to pay anything for the surgery and to have it removed. And this kind of makes me think a lot about, you know, what we see maybe with some orthopedic procedures, with some um, scary things. Patients come in and they're extremely worried. They're extremely scared and they want the physician to do something to fix their problem. And maybe they need it, maybe they don't need it. But the physician's there, the physician's looking at the problem saying, I could fix it right now, could just take care of it, or potentially could heal on your own and I won't have to operate. And it's so easy for a physician, and so easy for a patient to think, let's just operate, let's do it, let's get it done with, when you don't need to, and you don't have to pay the money, uh, when patients don't have to have that procedure done. It makes me think of, like, I've read some research on, like, meniscal tear repairs, and there's some evidence that says that for some minor meniscal tear repairs, they did a sham procedure, and the sham procedure got the same results as the surgical fix of the meniscus. And so there's just not great evidence that for minor tears, a surgery does fix the problem. And so while while a surgeon might just want to operate, be able to make some money and the patient would feel good either way. You know, it's not always the case that you should operate that you should do the procedure that you should always treat a problem.
0: One thing that I'd also like to add on to that is physicians have this incredible ability to nudge their patients one way or the other. So what might be best for the patient or might not be best for the physician's wallet or, you know, it requires a bit of beneficence. Like I think, um, I think there's probably some horror stories out there of like physicians who have. Actually, we'll talk about one later um, about physicians who are just being very predatory with their practices to make a lot of money uh, under the current fee-for-service industry. So I'm glad to hear that Kobe's okay.
1: Kobe is okay. My dog is okay. He's healing. <laughs> Everything is okay, <laughs> and we didn't have to spend money, which is even better. Before we move on to the next topic, it also makes me think about. Uh, One of my favorite, Atul Gawande articles that he wrote for The New Yorker called The Cost Conundrum. And if you guys have time, it'd definitely be a good thing to, to read. It was written in 2009, but it could definitely be from today and still relates to many of the same problems that we see today. And in this article, he compared two Texas cities. One had the highest healthcare spending in the US while the other was among average. And he looked at the different ways why one health one city had extremely high spending compared to the other. And there was many different factors that he he looked at and he compared. And the thing he landed on was that it was a culture of overtesting and over-treating that led to the rampant healthcare spending in one city compared to another. That was just one article, one example of over-treatment and the fact that how we practice and the tests and procedures that we do can greatly influence how much healthcare costs in the U.S. and also even in your specific city.
0: I was going to ask, did he ever like stratify or figure out what were the most prevalent reasons for over-testing and overtreating? Did he break it down by organ system or disease? Or
1: He didn't break it down by organ system or disease, but he gave examples of the of it just being a culture of you know overtreating and overtesting and so he he talked about how the expensive city had all new equipment for everything they had the finest you know surgical monitors and and tools and instruments and machines and and they got those because they were getting so much money in from overtesting and overtreating and He actually went out to dinner with a few of the physicians in the expensive city and was joking with them and gave them an example of a patient who came in with, you know, with chest pain and and one of them joked, oh oh yeah, he's getting a stent. You know, there is a gray area. When do you treat? When do you not treat? And they were just all moving towards treating instead of being more cautious.
0: Well, because I'm almost wondering if if you're talking about the culture of maybe even I'm I'm guessing the city right, not even just the healthcare there, just like the people that live in that city, they might be so concerned with their health that um, that they really want that, like, they want to make sure, they want to know, like, oh, do they have the coronary artery disease? You know, maybe they've been feeling a little tired lately. They want to know, do they have, you know, like COPDs? or they go get spirometry? And one of the things but, he did look at was overall health in each cities.
1: And that even though one city did have extreme spending compared to the other they didn't have improved health outcomes compared to the lower spending city
0: my point my point was more of like it's kind of like between like being in a culture of preventative medicine and taking care of yourself but then also who do you turn to when you don't feel well right maybe you're not maybe you're not ill but you don't feel as good as you normally do and you don't really know why so if you are proactive about your health you, and you live in a city where you have this culture of over-testing, over-treating, I think it could lead to a perfect storm of, you know, medical waste.
1: Yeah, I agree with you there. It reminds what? me of the phrase, you know, if, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. Just like if you're... You know, looking for disease, if, even if you're a patient who, who maybe has a tendency to be a little bit hypochondriac and, and thinks they always have something, or if you're a physician that thinks, you know, has biases that their patients always have a certain condition, it's going to look like that and you're going to treat it.
0: Yeah, so why don't you take us into our, our fourth form, our healthcare waste?
1: So the fourth form of healthcare waste is administrative complexity. And so this stems from the healthcare system being a extremely complex and extremely huge machine that needs administrators to work at billing and work at other things. And so Peter and I did some research and found some data that said there are now about 10 administrators for every one physician in the healthcare system, which is really shocking statistic to hear because you think physicians are the backbone of healthcare and health. But now because of the complexity we have in our system, administrators have now tenfold more influence or tenfold more, more people than physicians do. Control. Yeah. More control.
0: Yeah. And at different levels too, you know, you have administrators in intake, you have administrators governing hospital policy. You know, as Paul Thomas said, maybe the MD should start taking uh, taking things back from the MBAs, which you know i I do, I don't agree with. I think everyone's entitled to an opinion, but but this was actually the largest source of waste of all six of the forms that we'll talk about today. Yeah, um, so I think you know finding ways of streamlining billing or eliminating unnecessary administrative steps and people would be a really, really effective way of mitigating waste you know, beyond just like minimizing the amount of salary that you're dishing out as an institution.
1: Well, you brought up Paul Thomas there, and I think his model, direct primary care, and then other models such as the Oklahoma City Surgery Center are awesome alternative models that can help to eliminate administrative complexity because they take out all of the different hands that are trying to vie for your money in the healthcare system because it's direct payment from the consumer to the physician's organization, to the physician. And so that those are great alternative models that are springing up and that I hope will grow more that can work to eliminate some of this waste that we see with administration.
0: You seem like you're a big fan of DPC.
1: I am. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's an awesome, awesome creative model that could definitely help some of the problems that we see. In our healthcare system,
0: I mean, it streamlined the way that we listen to music. You know, think about it, Spotify is just DPC, but for music. <laughs> Whereas iTunes used to be fee for service, while right? you're paying for a song versus paying for a subscription. You get. I guess yeah, I
1: guess that is true.
0: <laughs> that's how I thought about it.
1: <laughs> that's a that's a good connection. So, Peter, why don't you talk about the fifth idea uh, from that article about medical waste?
0: The fifth. I guess, pillar of medical waste this is something I'm particularly passionate about um, because it, it strikes home with me as a scientist. So this is pricing failures, uh, specifically of drugs and treatments. So I guess as a scientist, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to figure out new and innovative ways of treating diseases and treating patients. But when I see drugs like Zolgemza that cost $2.1 million per dose, I kind of am at a loss for like, okay, I can make this treatment that cures a rare disease, but at what cost to the patient, like how, who can afford a $2.1 million treatment Like that's it's incredible that anyone could pay for this. And, you know, this is largely a policy level problem, you know, price negotiations at a pharmacy take lo- take place between, depending on what kind of insurance you have they take place between like the doctor and the insurance company or the insurance company and the, and the pharma company. And there's, I don't think there's a really easy answer to this one. I think as researchers, we sometimes lose sight of what's really important and that's well-being versus overall health sometimes. And, um, I actually, because I was showing you the fact that I bought a being mortal. I'm, I'm really curious to see what kind of thoughts I have coming out of this, because I remember, I know he talks mostly about like what, what constitutes a good life and, and I think financial ruin is something that doesn't really jive with a good life, you know?
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And one of the biggest causes of bankruptcy in the US, I, I believe it is the largest, is medical billing. And the fact that, you know, physicians are okay with maybe treating an illness, but then effectively setting their patients back immensely by bankrupting them is something that, that is tough to swallow and is tough definitely to think about when you think about a patient's entire health. And although you know I'm not a fan of everything Donald Trump does, not a huge fan, he has put in place a few different ways of combating pricing failures and medical um, waste in this way during his time as president. Uh, in 2019, he set up the Price Price Transparency Act, which is working to eliminate some of the discrepancies that we see in healthcare pricing across the u.s and then he also recently uh, in 2020 just put in place a law to lower certain drug prices especially of insulin in the u.s Mm -hmm. and so i i don't love everything donald trump does i don't love many things about him but there are two examples right there of the government actually working to improve this problem that we see of different pricing failures and and the vast differences that we see in pricing across the U.S. when it comes to medical care.
0: Yeah, and I, I personally believe that if you're going to make a drug that costs two point one million dollars, I think the onus should be on the producer of that drug. That's just my opinion. I know if I ever, like I I know, I think it's just because I have the medical background. Maybe it's the way I was raised or, what have you. I, I just I wouldn't start a biotech company that would you know, have terrible financial repercussions on people. Like, yes, I understand the free market, but at the same time, I feel like I should be doing everything I can to help people as a physician, as a physician scientist, I would say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely um, agree with you there.
0: Yeah. So I, I wasn't actually super excited about the, um, the solutions that Shrenk, Roxanne and Perrek had put out in their 2019 article, which were specifically, uh, you know, better negotiation at the pharmacy, Uh, efforts to standardize cost services. I think some of these work for, you know, things like insulin, things that are routinely prescribed and there are generics available and, you know, drugs don't cost $2.1 million. But I think there's also, you know, that bigger problem there that the the answer isn't quite apparent yet. Yeah. And And I think that's all I have to say about pricing failures.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's a systemic problem that we have in the healthcare industry because there's so many different hands that are involved now, whether it's insurance companies, whether it's hospital systems, whether it's pharmacies, whether it's pharmacy benefit managers, that there's so much complexity and everybody is trying to get a piece of the pie, which leads to these different prices, which leads to eventually the cost coming down to the patient and it hurting the patient's ability to pay. And Mm -hmm. so we, we bring up these alternative models a ton, but When you do alternative models and you don't include all those different hands, I know when I was reading Paul Thomas's book, he was talking about medication prices and there were medications that a patient with insurance would have to pay hundreds of dollars for, but Dr. Thomas can get it directly from the producer for cents or for a dollar for the same medication. But because it goes through all the different hands that want to take a piece of the money in healthcare, it costs so much more in the normal system. I
0: I wish we asked him about these hyper expensive drugs or like, you know, specialty treatments like CAR-T therapy. You know, I don't, I would be surprised because I I guess for CAR-T therapy, he would have to uh, refer his patients to a CAR-T clinic. Yeah. And that's something we
1: can definitely look at in future episodes. I would mm -hmm. love to interview somebody who's either works for, you know, a pharmacy or pharmacy benefit manager or somebody who, Uh, is a physician and gives these medications just to see, you know, what are some solutions? How can we fix this? And how can we make medicine more affordable for the patients? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And accessible
0: and accessible. Yeah, for sure. So Caleb, why don't you take us into our sixth and final form of healthcare waste?
1: So the last form of healthcare waste from this article was fraud and abuse. A lot of the other things we talked about, no one's really individually at fault for those it's a fault of the system, whereas this last one, fraud and abuse, there is, although we don't like to think about it, there is bad people in medicine. There are bad physicians, and sometimes this goes on in the patients, and this this increases waste by fake medical bills, medical scams, and all these different things that constitute fraud and abuse. One example I had that happened recently in Michigan, Peter and I are from Michigan, are living in Michigan right now, and not
0: not from Michigan. Not
1: from Michigan, Peter. <laughs> but there was a huge opioid bust in Michigan last year that had tons of physicians in it, and I, actually some physicians that I was aware of through different people. And basically, the physicians were prescribing patients opioids to get them hooked on the opioids and then they would continue to prescribe them in order to make money off of these patients. And so that was just one example of fraud and abuse in the medical system. I'm glad they got found out. I'm glad a lot of them are going to prison because it's just sad to see that in a profession where we're supposed to be caring for our patients and we're supposed to have their best interests in mind, people put money and people put other things ahead of their patients' well-being and their patients' lives.
0: One other example of fraud that I found quite uh, striking was uh, the, in Marty Macari's book, The Price We Pay, the first chapter, he's, he's talking about predatory practices among interventional cardiologists, where they would go to churches, largely in minority communities and do these health screens where they would ask them, do you have leg pain? And most most, Adults in America have will say they have leg pain because you know they're walking around a lot, or they maybe they're just feeling tired that day and they're like not wanting to be on their legs, or you know, maybe they worked out. I know when I do a thousand squats, I I get leg pain. Um, you do a thousand leg, squats often. Jump squats. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the leg pain that they were trying to insinuate was that of a DVT. Um, and there there are studies that show that this sort of screening doesn't really help at all with the DVT so what the, what these what these predatory screenings led to were uh, over testing so then there was like a follow-up ultrasound to you can't see this when away air quotes but just to make sure um, and then there was they they say maybe they did some angiography because the ultrasound was non-conclusive and they found some minor narrowing the fact is that most adults that were being for lack of a better word, hunted, have some minor leg vein narrowing. And so then these predatory cardiologists would then sign them up for a catheter stent or some angioplasty. And that's a really good way for them to rack up the bills. And this doesn't just cost the patient a lot of money. It also costs the insurance companies a lot of money. And that then trickles back to the taxpayers. If these are, you know, Medicare, Medicaid. So this is a huge form of waste that I think the repercussions are kind of, uh, they, they sort of like, it's like you drop a rock in a pond and it trickles outwards. Um, it's felt by all parts of the healthcare system.
1: Yeah, I think both of those are great examples of the fact that patients have so much trust in their physicians. And what their physician says, most often than not, is going to go. And so it's our responsibility as physicians to make sure we're not overtreating, to make sure we're keeping our patients' physical and mental health in mind, but also their financial help and the rest of their lives in mind as we treat these problems.
0: And I think a, a lot of these forms of waste are also interconnected. Like, you know, the, these predatory cardiology practices are not just a form of fraud, but they're also a form of overtreatment. And, you know, the Michigan opioid bust is not just a form of fraud. it's it was, uh, I guess it could also be pricing failure, depending how you looked at it.
1: Um, Yeah, I I definitely agree. And what we kind of wanted to do as we wind up today's talk is talk about why ultimately this is important. And then also what we can do as medical trainees and as future leaders. So Peter, why don't you start us off with that?
0: I like to think of, healthcare spending kind of as a a machine and the efficiency at which is it can operate is how low the waste is. So the higher the waste, the lower the efficiency. So if we're, you know, paying X amount of tax dollars and, you know, X like 0.05 X of that is becoming waste, you're losing 50 percent of your tax spending. That's not the actual number. But the point is, I think medical waste is important because it's it's the amount of money that we don't spend on useful things. And you know, it's kind of like when you, when you burn oil, the byproduct is gas and you don't really, you don't really use it in your engine. So you can put in more oil, but that costs more money. So I think having a better engine would definitely help you run the medical system better. That's why I think it's important.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think you talked about how we're essentially wasting money that could be used for other things, and eventually that falls down into the patient having to pay for it. And that's what I think is the most important thing when we think about medical waste, is that yes, as providers, yes, as people in healthcare, it is bad and it does hurt the system, but most importantly, the waste that we see contributes to our patients and the people who are paying for this system to have to pay more which is our patients. And so if we want to think about our patients' well-being and their financial health, it's important that we work to try to eliminate the waste that we see in our healthcare system.
0: I would say also the non-patients are paying for it. Like I'm a taxpayer, I don't really go to the physician too much because I'm you know I'm pretty healthy. I only go when I feel like I have to or for my annual checkup. So yeah, it's the patients and the non-patients.
1: A lot of our population is on Medicare and Medicaid, and thus our healthcare spending is being paid for by taxes. So you're Mm -hmm. definitely right by saying that as well.
0: So why don't you um, start to tell us some of the things that we can do as medical trainees to help eliminate waste in our system?
1: Yeah, so one thing I thought of is just making sure that when you're in the hospital, you have you're learning, yes, but you have the ability to ask physicians and people that are training you, why are we ordering this test? Why are we doing this procedure? What are the indications for this procedure? What are the different reasons why this test is applicable right now? And yes, we are learning, but we can also contribute to thinking about, is this necessary right now? Is this procedure necessary? Is this test necessary? And does this patient really need it to improve their health and improve their survival? And so while you continue to learn in the hospital, while you continue to grow as a future physician, you can also work as a check and balance and as, ask your attendings and ask the physicians around you, what are the different indications and what are the different reasons why a test or a procedure is done?
0: And yeah, so, so one thing I thought about, and I, I kind of touched on this earlier, is that physicians have this amazing power to nudge their patients one way or the other. So educating your colleagues and being an example yourself as an advocate for your patient's care rather than an advocate for your wallet could be a really good way to mitigate some waste in a bunch of these different uh, pillars of waste. And even, you can even do this as a student, you know, like if you feel like you're you're seeing some sort of fraud or abuse taking place, talk to somebody, report errors, you know, Um, actually, actually, I think that's something else we didn't talk about really, but learning how to report errors is important. Maybe we should talk about a later episode because we're finishing up now, but learn how to report errors and don't be afraid to speak up as a student. So I think that brings up the last thing that we wanted to
1: encourage you guys to do as medical trainees and future leaders, which is making sure that you're comfortable and working to challenge this, maybe the status quo in healthcare. Obviously, the healthcare system is inefficient. Yes, there are issues with the healthcare system. So, in order to change the healthcare system and the waste that we see, something is going to have to change. And our group of physicians, the physicians that are being trained up right now, could be the group that makes these changes and challenges what we always see in healthcare and the status quo that's been going on for years and years. So, don't be afraid to speak out. Don't be afraid to try to make a difference and improve the waste that you see in our healthcare system as you continue to train and as you continue to work towards being a physician and being a physician leader.
0: And just to kind of add on to that, cause I think you said it very well, Caleb, but the scientists in me must say do the studies. You know, if you, if you see, if you see a gap again, talk to people and find how you can do a small scale study to address that problem. And then if it works, push it, you know, maybe it could be a big fix for the national health care system that we are, we're trying to work on. And this could take the form of many things, you know, it could be a systematic change. It could just be uh, a fix for the way we treat a specific at-risk population or a community, or it might work in, you know, a specific department in a hospital. You see that they're not doing something the right way or, a better, or they could be doing it a better way. So don't be afraid to do the study. It's a good way to get research into. I know we all want that as medical students.
1: Well, that's all for today. Hopefully you guys were able to learn something about medical waste and start to think about the different ways that we as students can contribute to improving the medical system and, and decreasing the waste that we see in healthcare. We'll see you next time on Leading the Rounds.
0: Hey everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds, or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.